If you've got your Bibles there, you might want to open up to um, Psalm, Book of Psalms, uh, chapter 13. That's what we'll be looking at today. Um, I remember being at a conference once and hearing um, uh, uh, this guy talking. He was a reasonably, it wasn't a big conference, it was kind of a locally type thing, but he was a well-known sort of Christian <coughs> leader. And um, he was telling his story, and his story was somewhat known, we knew a little bit about it, but <coughs> he gave us a, like a very truncated version of, of what had happened, and essentially the kind of story went like this, you know, we had this thing, it was all going great guns, wonderful, 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 the wheels came off, that was really hard, and then, you know, we saw how wonderful God was, and now, 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 and that little middle bit, the the wheels fell off and it was really hard, it was really nothing more than a passing reference, you know. It was all wonderful, the wheels fell off, but now let me tell you how wonderful things are, let me tell you about how great God is and all the things that we learned going through that. And anyway, afterwards I was just sort of speaking to him and I said, just out of curiosity, how long was that middle bit between, the, between it was all wonderful and, and you know, your new season you're in? And he went, oh, 15 years. And I said, 15 years. I said, you gave it about 10 seconds in your, in your sermon. He goes, well, people don't want to hear about that. And I said, I, I beg to differ. I said, I think people do want to hear about that. Look, I get it, right? Let's not focus on the negative and let's not get caught up in just telling our sad stories, all right? But, but there is real value in talking about that part of the journey for you and your wife and your family and everything that entailed because... I know, I don't know about you guys, but I know personally as well, sometimes you can feel like a bit of an alien, right? When things are not going well for you and you look around and it just looks like everyone, everything's going so well for everybody else, because we know how to pretend well in church, don't we? If nothing else, we know how to conform, all right? Okay, so everyone else looks like it's going okay and the, kind of the wheels are falling off with you and you're not resonating with the things that are being said, you're not you're not relating to the words that are on the screen and you don't know what to do with that. And I said, and so for people like you to be able to, to tell that story within reason and be honest about what you were thinking and feeling and how dark that time was for you, it kind of validates the rest of us. It validates our disorientation. You know, it gives us permission to be honest in those times. And in some ways, you give us the language to use to help us process that as we begin to go through it. You know, experience has shown that there is a very high possibility that every single one of us, unless you're extraordinarily blessed, and I use that term very loosely, there is a high, high, high possibility that we will find ourselves in the middle of a story that we don't want to be a part of, okay? It's not the narrative we would choose for ourselves. It is not the storyline we would choose for ourselves. There's a difficult diagnosis. The relationship goes south. The kids go off the rail. There's an accident. That job that you thought you'd have forever is taken away from you and you're too old for anyone to employ again. And it's one thing for us to look back at those stories and to tell those stories from the other side and, and with the benefit of all the hindsight that comes with that and the distance that comes with not being in the middle of it and to see, oh, it was kind of just a bit of a blip on the radar, but now I look back on it, I can see that God was doing this and that that's wonderful with all that hindsight, but that's not how it is when you're in the middle of it, is it? That's not how you feel when you are inhabiting that part of the story. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Okay, that is not how you feel about it then. Sometimes when you're in the middle of that stuff, in fact, a lot of the times when you're in the middle of that stuff, <clears throat> despite the fact that you have maintained all the way when things are going better, and as much as you'd like to maintain with all, all integrity, there are times where you just don't believe the things you used to believe. And the things that you say you used to believe or say you believe, they're not ringing true for you anymore. And you pray and the heavens feel like brass and God could not seem more distant and disinterested in you and nothing seems to be changes. Can anyone relate to that? Okay? And you find yourself in the middle of that just completely discombobulated and disoriented feeling like there must be something wrong with me because this, everyone else seems to glide through these things based on the stories they tell and not really knowing what to do with that. So what do we do with that when we find ourselves in this part of the story? Well, sometimes we fall into the trap of feeling like that sort of stuff that we're experiencing, or our stories are kind of unique to us personally, or even unique to our time. But one of the things that the Bible does for me as I read through it, is it reinforces the solidarity that we have with humans since the beginning of time. And there are these, these human experiences that no one is immune or impervious to, uh, that we go through where life deals us up some really difficult stuff, um, for, sometimes for extended periods of time. And what you find in the scriptures when you read them, and if you, you, know, you don't just gloss over these bits, sometimes you will actually find them asking exactly the same questions that we're asking when we go through that. They're dealing with questions of meaning and of purpose and of right and wrong and of life and of death. And they're trying to work out where God is in all of this and what it all means and where's it all going and what do you do in the middle of all of this. This is right throughout the Bible. That's why I love scripture because it doesn't hide this stuff from us. Um, there's a lot of wrestling in there. It's reflected in those writings and God is comfortable with that wrestling being reflected in these writings and being handed down for centuries. Yeah? Okay? It's there for us and it's there for a reason. And, and one of the other things sometimes we do is we, and we read stories of the Bible with the benefit of hindsight and miss a lot of that anguish that's in there. You know, So we can read the stories of people like Moses or David um, or Joseph, for example, you know, and, and we're like, why are you stressed out? You know it's all going to end well. Well, they don't know it's going to end well. They didn't know they were in the Bible, did they? <laughs> they, they they're, they're not in this going, <laughs> sell me into slavery, it's fine. I know I'm going to become one of the most powerful men in Egypt, you know, that's okay. I know how this story ends. They don't know how it ends. And, and, you know, and it wasn't short periods of time we're talking about either. Moses, it was a 40-year thing. A 40 years, of, on, literally on the backside of the desert, we're told. Herding sheep. He's gone from that to that. And that call that was on his life, it's gone. 40 years. Joseph was probably around 21 years from being thrown into slavery, sold into slavery, and when he ascended to that position of power in Egypt, 21 years. And you know what happened in the middle of that? He was falsely accused, he was put in a dungeon, he was locked away, he was forgotten. All sorts of horrible stuff happened to him. David, you know, between the time he was anointed as king over Israel and the time that he actually ascended to the throne of Israel was about 14 years. And in those 14 years, Saul was trying to pin him to walls with spears. You know, he was on the run for most of this time. Horrible stuff was happening. Then, he, then he, when he should be off at war, he's perving at some bird in a bath and he ends up getting her pregnant and, and, and the baby dies. So he goes through all this anguish as well, I'm paraphrasing. Okay. Um, then, then one of his own sons decides that he's going to take the kingdom from him. I mean, this guy went through a mess. And he never tries to hide that from us. And you get this in, in Psalm 13. I'm going to read it. I'm reading from the, the nearly infallible version. It says... <coughs> 
It says, for the director of music. So this is a song. Where's Sam? Where's our worship pastor? Sam, I want this put to music, okay? And to, a, to a, like a really boppy beat as well. Um, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph from me? You can feel it, can't you? Right. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I'm going to sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Now he gets there. But I will trust in the Lord's unfailing love and my heart rejoices. I will sing. He gets there. But don't be quick to gloss over those first two stanzas, okay? Don't be quick to gloss over those things as if somehow he's, he's kind of gone on a bit of a, you know, an internet rampage on his keyboard where he's said exactly what he thinks and then realises, whoops, now I need to wind this up and say something constructive and positive and make it sound like I've never doubted anything, you know? This reflects what he was thinking and, as I said, it reflects large portions of his time and life experience. It, it wasn't over in the time that it took me to quote those two stanzas. We were talking years and years at some point. Where he is saying, where are you, God? How much longer do I have to put up with this situation? How much longer do I have to be tormented by my thoughts? How long do I have to put up with it with people looking at me, right, and saying, basically, he's cursed. God has given up on him. How long do I have to put this? How long do I have to put up with just wishing I were dead because I can't handle this anymore? Don't be quick to gloss over that sort of stuff. And David's not alone in that. You find this through, through Scripture in lots of places. Jeremiah, when things were not going well for him, he says to God, you deceived me. You deceived me. That's pretty serious. Habakkuk basically says to God, answer me. You tell me why this situation's happening. And despite everything I'm doing, nothing's changing. You, I'm putting you in the dock right now. He gets really terse with God, okay? Then we've also got... Um, who else we got? Oh, Jesus. We just, we just celebrated Easter, didn't we? And what's one of the things that happened on that cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we can spiritualize that and theologize that around and go, oh, you know, it was just this and it was... I believe Jesus felt completely abandoned by God in that time. Yeah? It was a genuine heart cry. And these are not new issues, you know. These have been going on for a while. I say it's before biblical times, biblical times. After one of the early church, church mystics, I think it was St. John of the Cross, called it the dark night of the soul. Has anyone heard of that? This time where there's just this impenetrable darkness and you don't know which way is up. Um, they talked about this type of stuff. But why? Why do we go through this stuff? You know, when life deals us up, some of this unexpected, unpleasant, difficult stuff, why do we go through stuff? I think the answer is kind of, you know, there's, there's a range of things in it, but it's a very simple basis for it. And it's because we all have an understanding how things should work, even things with God. And then we get very, very thrown when it doesn't work like that. I remember years ago, um, there was a, a lady in our church who was dying from cancer. And... Oh, man, we'd prayed with her and, you know, we'd fasted. And uh, I remember even at one point we went to a, um, the faith healer sort of came to town. And so we took her along 
to that and you know we, we just tried everything because we thought you know God is bigger than cancer yeah he can he can heal cancer and um, nothing was changing and then then I thought oh you know the, the James the James solution you know what the James solution is where it says in James confess your sins to one another that you may be healed okay we've probably missed something here you know and so we spent time doing a basic inventory of her life making sure that she had confessed you know every sin that there ever was because you know if, if you do that if you confess your sins you're, you're going to be healed right has anyone thought that anyone no I'm alone okay that's awkward um and I'm the theologically educated one well okay props to you <clears throat> okay so we're going along and we're doing this anyway long story short um she died now this was all coming from a good place for everyone involved, everything we did, all the fasting and the faith healers and the, you know, the spiritual inventory, that um, was all coming from a really good place. We wanted to see this lady healed and who doesn't want to see someone healed? And you'll try anything, you know what I mean? And I didn't think, I didn't think that we were trying snake oil, I thought we were trying biblical principles. I thought that we were actually doing what God wanted us to do. Now there's a few problems, I, on reflection, I thought there's a few problems with taking not with what James says, but certainly in the way we've interpreted the, what James is, is talking about. I think one of them is, how are you supposed to remember everything you've ever done? Anyone? Uh, I, I can't. That, that's, so that's problematic. What if our definition of sin is different to God's definition of sin? What if I, what if I call an accident God calls sin? Um, at what point is there accountability? I mean... Yeah, what if I'm acting in ignorance? Uh, and God says, no, no, you're old enough to know the difference about that. But I guess a bigger issue for me when I, when I thought about the way I was interpreting this was what sort of God sits in heaven with a checklist? Because he's omniscient, so he knows everything, right? So he's got the comprehensive checklist. You understand that, don't you? Okay. What sort of God sits in heaven and watches desperate people pray for healing, ticking things off, and then goes, you missed one. You're going to die. It doesn't reflect well, does it? It doesn't reflect well at all on God. But see, there's this kind of understanding of how things work that has crept into the church. It's crept into our theology. It's crept into a lot of the ways we, we see and think and even handle things sometimes in church. And it's, it's, it's what I would call a very Newtonian spirituality in, in that it comes down to cause and effect. If we do this, then this will happen. Okay, if we do this, then this will happen and it takes a few different forms and I think that you know the faith teaching and the prosperity gospel are probably the most kind of amped up versions of this particular thing um, but essentially it's the same idea if we do this then God will do that in a sense it's a way of almost using faith as a mechanism to control God that's that's how it manifests itself um, so it's like, if you tithe, God will open the floodgates of heaven, you know. If you pray and you believe, and I mean really, really, really believe, then God will. If you fast, then God will. If you agree about anything, then God will. If you persist, then God will. And I understand why that message is so appealing. I understand why that type of thinking is so appealing, because it provides us with some comfort in believing 
that A, the world is, and life is fair and just and if we behave in a certain way then we could reasonably expect certain outcomes. That God blesses those who do the right things. It, it provides a nice, neat and clear way of understanding how things work. And it provides, I guess, here's more important, a sense of control over the chaos of life. Um, and the belief that we can actually, if we do the right things, we can curate our life into what we really want it to be. And for the most part, and this is not wrong, but most of us, you know, we want to be healthy. We want our families to be happy. You know, we want m enough money to live on, you know, and it varies as to what that means for some people. I mean, for what some people is like enough is never enough for some people. But, but you know, we want the normal sort of human things that everybody wants. And what this kind of thinking does to us is it provides us a way of being able to curate that type of life. If we, if we do these type of things, then we can rightfully and reasonably expect these type of outcomes. And it all seems kosher. I mean, for a start, the people who preach these messages, they do live in big houses and drive big cars, don't they? Yeah? It's, it's like, you know, they're smoking what they're selling. They're like, you know, I, I teach this and look at the size of my house and look at my car and look at my jet stream Gulfstream, whatever it is. I don't know, I don't have one. <laughs> is it a Gulfstream? What's the one we just put a down payment on with the church money? Gulfstream. Um, sorry? Oh, okay. Soda stream, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Soda stream. It's not quite the same thing. It's getting there, though. Um, you know, <laughs> but they are, they're, they're living proof. They're, they're walking, talking advertisements for this works. And, you know, the people in their, in their crowds that come to watch them, they aspire to the same, well, they aspire to security and prosperity um, and health and, you know, and that's not bad. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that, you know, and then they tell their stories. I mean, the one I, the one I just heard recently, was, it's probably a little off to the side, but I've got to share it because I think it's ridiculous. But... But basically, one of these rich guys, was on his, he's on his ranch um, and there's a tornado coming. And so he and his wife, they're, like everyone else, they're told to get into their shelters. But what he and his wife do is they go and stand on the porch of their ranch and they shake their fists at the heavens and they demand that God turn the tornado away from their ranch. And then he said, and then I thought about it and I thought, why not turn it away from my friends' ranches as well? And so God did, and he destroyed other people's ranches uh, because they didn't stand on the porch and shake their fists. And, and, and I thought, mm, you could argue that it was your faith. You know, I mean, God's in heaven going, I'm, I'm actually going to destroy your ranch. Oh, no, you've exercised so much faith. I've got to relent and change my mind. I'll have to go over here. Um, I, I thought you could reasonably argue that maybe it was faith that did that, but tornadoes turn on their own, don't they? Yeah? Any tornado experts here? All right, no, probably not. Okay. So this type of thinking is, is reflected right throughout, um, you know, it, it's, it's reflected right throughout the Bible. And, and where you kind of get this, the genesis of this type of thinking is in the book of Deuteronomy where basically it starts off like this. I am the Lord your God who's brought you out of Egypt and delivered you. And so if you will, then I will. And there are all these conditions. If you will do this, then I will do this. If you will do this, then I will do this. And this kind of filters through. Now, what we need to understand about that is these first five books of the Bible, what we call the, the Pentateuch or the Torah, okay, these five books of the Bible were not kind of, they were kind of curated and put together after the, the, 
exiles had come back from Babylon. All right? And what they were doing when they were putting together all these historical facts and writings, they were trying to make sense of their own story up until that point. Because they had been called to be God's people and, and with God's people had become this implicit or explicit blessing. You know, I'm, you will be my people and you will be a blessing. I will bless you and you will be a blessing to everyone else in the earth. But things didn't go that way. They went through two invasions and exiles. And so they're looking back on their history and they're saying, how did we get ourselves into such a mess? What, absolute, what, what went wrong here? And the conclusion they drew was, we didn't keep our end of the bargain, therefore God was under no obligation to bless us and protect us and he's teaching us a lesson. And so by the time you get to the time of Jesus in the New Testament, you've got this kind of hyper-religiosity that has developed in the Pharisees and that, who are being vigilant and fastidious about avoiding any whiff of anything to do with sin or unholiness. You know what I'm talking about, don't you, when you read through the New Testament. Here are these guys, they're straining out gnats, you know, so they don't get little insects in there. They're washing their hands seven times before they touch it. You know, there's just all of this sort of stuff. To us, we go, look, that just looks a little bit crazy, but the thinking behind it was not doing what God wanted got us into trouble in the past and we don't want to repeat that again. So in a sense, they were kind of like the good guys who were trying to keep people on the straight and narrow and avoid Israel being taken into captivity again. Even though the Romans were there, but that was the other part of this equation for them. Maybe if, our, maybe if we do everything that God wants and we do it to the degree that God wants, he'll get rid of the Romans too. So you've got to understand where this cause and effect thing sort of comes through. And it trickled down from the from the, uh, from the collective to the individual as well. So you have that story of Jesus going with his disciples walking through and it says, they come across a man born blind. And the disciples say to him, who sinned that this man was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? Now think about that for a second. For that man to have sinned in order to cause his own blindness, he would have had to do it in utero. Yeah? That's the age of accountability. It's fetal, okay? The other thing is, again, think about it. What sort of God punishes the child for the parent's shortcomings? Right? Now, the problem we have with this is because it's in the Bible. But don't forget, they're reflecting their worldview. They're not necessarily talking about what's true. They're reflecting about what they think is true. Do you understand what I'm saying? And that's how we have to read a lot of the scriptures, okay? They are reflecting the predominant thinking of their time, which was part of their way of working out how it all works. So this is not being critical of them, I'm just saying. That was how they thought. If you went past a beggar who was lame, it was their fault. If you went someone who was blind, it was their fault. Those lepers that had to ring a bell so everyone would get out of the way, it was their fault. Or someone in their family's fault caused an effect. And we've imbibed that type of thinking to some extent, okay? So please don't mishear what I'm saying in all of this. Let me just clarify it, because I fear that, that in, in, in sort of touching on some of this stuff, you may think I'm saying something that I'm not. On the one hand, cause and effect is real. Our lives and our choices have real consequences. Is that fair enough? Absolutely. If you make good, wise choices, the chances of you having better outcomes in life are significantly increased, yeah? If you make poor choices, then you could probably rightly expect bad outcomes. So that's real. That's just how life works. So I'm not denying that reality at all. Secondly, I'm not suggesting for one second that we shouldn't tithe or believe or agree or persist in prayer. We need God to do the impossible, and that requires us playing our part, which is to keep asking him either until something happens or until we're clear that it's not going to happen. Amen? All right? So, so it's not that I'm saying 
don't do any of that. Of course we do. I, I pray for people to be healed. I pray for miracles all the time because there is a limitation to what we can accomplish and we serve a God of the impossible. So we don't want to lose that in this, all right? But there come, here's what I'm, the issue that I'm taking with this. When we extrapolate that cause and effect thing out as a way of understanding how things work, full stop. When we turn faith into a formula or mechanism to try and both explain or to control outcomes, then we've crossed a line and we're missing out on something and we're going to get ourselves in trouble because it just doesn't work. And the Bible itself is even quite open in challenging that idea. So on the one hand, you have books like Deuteronomy saying, I'm God and if you do this, then I will do this. And you start getting this thinking that says, okay, if we behave right and we do all the things that God wants us to do, everything's going to be okay. But then you come across a book like Job. Job, okay, Job. He has lived the most exemplary life there is possible. There's no one on the face of the earth like this man in terms of ticking all the boxes, but his life is absolutely devastated. He loses everything and everyone except his wife in that process and then has to endure all his friends, well, a number of his friends anyway, sitting around with him for a prolonged period of time, saying to him, again, reflecting their understanding of how the world works and how God works and everything, Job... Just fess up to what it is you've done wrong and this can all be over, okay? You've forgotten something. There must be some deep, dark secret in your youth that you're either hiding or can't remember to explain this catastrophe that you're going through. Now, God puts up with this for about 50 chapters, right? We don't know. Job doesn't know it's chapters, right? But about 50 chapters. And in the end, he goes, time, look, stop. You know, who is this? that darkens my counsel with this stupidity, okay? It's not how it is. And then he proceeds to talk to Job. You don't really get a satisfactory answer out of that other than, hey, I'm God. Um, it's really, that's what it amounts to in the end. It's like, hey, Job, I'm God. And you do with that what you want, um, all right? But, but, but here's the thing. Here's an exemplary guy who gets a disastrous life. It doesn't always work like that. Then you get things like Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, and he says this, and this is a statement that he makes, right? Surely, good is though, uh, surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. That's how it works, right? The next verse he says, but, but as for me, my foot almost slipped. I mean, in other words, I had to rethink that. I was really challenged about that. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, well, hang on a second, if you're good, you get God's blessing and things work out well. If you're bad, God doesn't bless you or, more actively, you may even be cursed by God and things will go very bad for you. God blesses the righteous. Wait a second, I'm seeing a bunch of evil people prosper. And then he goes on in this rant saying about all the things that they do and then he says this, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In other words, where does being good get you? Anyone ever thought like that? Where does being good get you? I've been doing all the right things. I'm not prospering. They don't give a rip about people or about God, and they're prospering. And they're going around showing off all the, all the trophies of their prospering. And here I am struggling with all of this. It doesn't add 
up. See, if you think we live in a Newtonian sort of spirituality, good people suffering and bad people prospering, they're going to really destabilize the rock you're standing on, right? They really are, okay? It doesn't add up. The idea that if we do this, then God will do this. If we confess, then God will. If we agree, then God will. You know, if we have more faith, then God will. If we plant our seed of faith, then God will. Okay, it's not how it works. In the real world, good people suffer and bad people prosper. Jesus said it like this, God sends his reign on the just and the unjust. He challenged that notion himself. So if you think, you're tempted to think <clears throat> that somehow doing all the right things is going to protect or guarantee you from all, any and all type of calamity, you're not, you're sadly mistaken. And if you think that people who live badly are somehow going to just, that's all they're going to get, you're mistaken. They're going to get good stuff too. Because God sends his reign on the just and the unjust. So what do we do with that? Because this is the stuff that makes people's faith crash, isn't it? This is the stuff that makes people get so disoriented and so discombobulated and they don't know where to go with it. They feel like they're, they're betraying God or their faith or they're backsliding or something when they suddenly start to go, I'm not seeing how this works anymore. I'm not feeling that. I used to believe that was true. Now I'm not so sure that's true. They look around at everyone else, shiny, happy people, you know, and we're going around and we're like, you know, our life's just a dream, even if it's not, we're just going to pretend it is, okay? We're going around like a dream. They're going, I don't fit here anymore. And so people find it really hard to belong to churches, to communities of faith, if there's not a space or a, an atmosphere or an environment or culture created where people can go, it's okay to be able to process this sort of stuff here. It's okay for us to think out loud. It's okay for us to question. It's okay for us to have doubts. The Bible does it. And God didn't see any need to edit that out. He left it in there because he wants us to understand this is what it's like to navigate life. There are these incredible periods of certainty and then there is incredible periods of uncertainty and everything in between. And it's all part of what it means to be human and to try and live this life as best you possibly can, even as a follower of Jesus. So what do we do with that stuff? The diagnosis comes in, the unemployment hits, let's say the kids go off the rail, an accident strikes, unemployment comes in. What do we do? Well, the problem we have is in a worldview where a good outcome is our right and reward for right behaviour and right faith, Illness and failure and tragedy are nothing more than symptoms of an unrighteousness on our part. That's what it comes down to. If we think that our right and reward is all blessing and everything lining up because we're doing this, then when these things don't occur, it obviously points to a problem within us. And in that worldview, we become problems to be solved. That's what happens to us. Why, why aren't you getting better? Have you confessed all your sin? Do you believe that God can heal you? Do you really believe that God can heal you? Have you fasted about this? Who are you agreeing with in prayer? Anyone know what I'm talking about? If you haven't been through that, count yourself lucky because some of us have been through that sort of stuff. And it becomes really personally hard to process too because, I mean, Jesus says if you have faith the size of a mustard seed you can throw mountains into the sea and so you're not getting better and you're not getting that job and your child is still acting out causing chaos and you're praying and you're thinking to yourself then i don't even have faith as big as a mustard seed at this point do i yeah but they also become awkward indicators 
that there are bigger problems as well. I know that some people go to the extreme of going, what's wrong with our church? What's wrong with our church? We've got sick people and they're not being healed. We've got people whose marriages are falling apart and we've prayed for them and their marriages are still falling apart. What's wrong with our church? Again, cause and effect. If these outcomes aren't happening, then the problem must be on our end somewhere. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for healthy, honest inventory about checking ourselves. Have we got unconfessed sin? Are we genuinely believing? Like, we need to do that stuff from time to time. And I'm all all for praying and believing and hoping and agreeing. I'm all for seeing God do the impossible, okay? I'm just saying, let's not fall into the trap of being formulaic about it because that just does damage to us and it does damage to other people. And I'm all for the great stories and testimonies from the other side when we've seen God come through. I don't want us to stop telling those stories. We need to tell those stories. I want to hear the miracle stories. But I'm also wanting us to be a a community of people who are able to tell the middle parts of the stories as well. And to be the sort of community who can embrace the tension that comes with living in the middle of these stories from time to time when nothing seems to be happening and nothing seems to be changing. So let me just wind up by saying, what does that look like? And I'll go really quickly, because I think I've spoken for a little while, haven't I? Is anyone keeping time? Okay, sorry. I'll leave it till next week. Isn't it like a serial cliffhanger? You know, like, what will happen? Um, I've got to watch, I've got to watch. I'm just trying to get people to come back to church. I'll use anything. There's, There's just no integrity here. All right. Let me finish. I'll finish really quickly. Okay. So what does that look like? One, I think it means we need to just embrace the tension. By that I mean this. We believe that in Jesus, and we talked about this at Easter, in Jesus and through the resurrection, the kingdom of God has broken into this world and heaven has come to earth. And that restoration work that God is doing where he is making all things new, that has begun and it is here and it is within our reach. The kingdom of God is within your reach. You know, it is within you, it is here, it is a reality. And, and I, for one, want to see as much of that as I possibly can bef- this side of eternity. Amen? All right, I want, to see, I want to see the kingdom come. But it's not here yet fully. That won't happen until Jesus returns. All right? So we live in this in-between time. We live in a time between the possibilities exist, but they're not guaranteed at this point because we still live in the tension of a fallen world with the presence of the kingdom. Is that clear? So rather than having to come down one way or the other, either it's all true and we just got to try harder or it's not true at all, we get to walk this really difficult road of the middle tension. where you know It is a tension that we need to navigate. It's not a problem we're going to solve. And so we will always have victory stories where we prayed and that happened. And, and sad stories where we prayed and that didn't happen. We will see people get healed, but we will bury people. We will see breakthroughs, but then we will see catastrophe. It's just the reality of living this tension. We've just got to embrace that. It is our reality. It, we have to live in it. And one day when Jesus returns, we don't have to do it anymore. But until then, we have to do well at ma- navigating that tension. Okay? Secondly, we need to rethink our definitions. 
Our definition's about prosperity and blessing, whatever. I think part of the problem for us is it's about expectation management. We think something means a certain thing, and when that doesn't deliver, we think we've missed out. Whereas what I'm going to suggest to you now is that that maybe our, our definitions are just so narrow we miss out on everything that's contained in the thing that's happening. I, I read something the other day and I, and I thought it was worth quoting. And it says, what if rich didn't have to mean wealthy? What if whole didn't have to mean to be healed? What if being people of the gospel meant we are simply people with good news? That God is here, we are loved, and it is enough. Wouldn't we see God in so many other ways? rather than the one way we've allowed him to turn up in that situation. You know, our definitions sometimes are just so narrow. And I believe we miss true miracles and true acts and works of God because our bandwidth is like that. You know, when we got out of ministry and we had two years, like neither Heather or I could get a full-time job. And I don't know why he wouldn't employ this. I mean, it would be an asset like (laughs) anywhere. So basically, keeping a roof over our head and survival was a big thing, you know. And don't get me wrong, I prayed for a full-time job all the time. But if my understanding or, or my sort of confidence in God had to simply come down to the fact that he got us both a full-time job, I would have been disappointed because that never transpired. But God provided for us in so many different ways that I believe were actually more meaningful than simply giving us a full-time job. And I, in, even in the middle of that time, we could actually recognise that. We don't just have to look back on that romantically and go, well, we can see what God did. We could see God in the middle of that because we never went hungry and we never lost a roof over our head in that time. He didn't give us a full-time job, but then he can do whatever he wants, yeah? Okay? And so we were able to receive the blessing of that in the middle. And the final thing I'd want to say is we need to get really good at loving in the mess. We want to be a community where it's okay not to be okay. Yeah, a community where it's okay not to be okay. And people don't have to feel like they have to either stay away when they're not okay or pretend to be okay when they're here, okay? We need to be able to place where people can just be honest about what's going on for them and how they're feeling. And we don't get freaked out like that we've got to fix them and they're losing their faith and we've got to stop them off this trajectory or that somehow we feel like we're inadequate because if we were, we were a better type of church, then they wouldn't be having this problem or put them on the spot by going, so what unconfessed sin is, your, is in your life that you're feeling like this? You know, We need them to feel like this is a judgment and I'm going to fix you free zone. Okay? Because I like what Richard said earlier, especially about men, part of pastoral care, don't try and fix people. It's exhausted. Newsflash, we can't fix people yeah, or, or people's problems, okay, and we're not called to. So we need to be a judgment-free zone. We need to be, I'm going to fix you, free zone, okay? And I think this is why a reason so many people walk away from the church when difficulty strikes because there is this dissonance for them in their experience and their thinking and their feeling and what they're seeing when they come to these places and the words they see on that screen and they can't say it and they go, therefore it must not be true. And it's like, no, 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 no. Neither of these things are invalidated. Your experience is not invalidated. This truth is not invalidated. It's just where you're at at the moment. You don't feel it right now. It's hard for you to say those words, but that doesn't make them any less true. And you know what? You don't even have to say them right now. There's a sense for me that it comes down to this. In the end, it's community that's going to get us through, not theology. 
right? It's community that's going to get us through, not theology. And I know that from personal experience. There have been a number of times since I started in this role, and many of you will know some of the story around what we generically call the unpleasantness that happened <laughs> here. Um, it's like, like the troubles in Northern Ireland. It was the, the unpleasantness. Um, there were times it took everything within me to come here to the point that I was physically sick in the mornings coming here. And to stand at the front of this church and to read those words, I actually needed you to carry me in those times I, because I didn't have the strength to do it. I needed you to carry me. And you did. And you did in ways that you, you don't even know that you did. You sang those songs. You know, we've talked about this in worship, how Paul says, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. can also be translated, you know, speak to yourselves. But it's speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And you were speaking to me during those times. And I was reading the words and I couldn't sing them because they were not resonating with me. They were not true to me. But they were true to you. And you were telling me they were true. And somehow I had hope that one day I would get back there as well. Okay? So I needed to be carried by community. And, and the Bible says that. Bear one another's burdens. And in so doing, you fulfill the law of Christ, which is what? Love. We have to bear one another's burdens. And sometimes it was, it was a stupid joke. Sometimes it was a pat on the back and a wink, like, it'll be okay. People would say things to me like, this too shall pass. They didn't try and solve my problems. It was just the constant encouragement that A, we see you. B, we're with you. C, it's going to be okay. That's how communities function. It doesn't take any great skill. We don't have to be psychoanalysts. We don't have to be schooled in that sort of thing or even deep theologians. We just have to be loving human beings. That's all we have to be. So let us be that place. Because you know what? There's more and more people. That, that one of the highest, um, the fastest growing collection, collective of spirituality is called the nuns and duns, right? It's people who have turned their back on traditional Christianity and church because it doesn't work for them anymore. And part of the reason it doesn't work for them anymore is because churches have not handled this dissonance well. We need to do better because it's not going to get any easier. This is a place where you can doubt. You can shake your fists at the heaven, not to demand that tornadoes turn around, okay? But because you're frustrated because God either can't or won't deal with your problem right now. It's okay to go through a dark night of the soul. It's okay to go, I feel like I've been forsaken by God. Because there's a group of people around you who know that I get, I know why you're feeling that and I validate that. But we're also here to remind you that it's, it's going to be okay and you haven't been forgotten. Look, he gets here in the end, doesn't he? But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. You get there. We get there. But sometimes it's a journey. Sometimes it takes years. And people are tended to back off, and we're tended to back off with people because it's uncomfortable to be around people whose lives are in that sort of disarray and, and have, are going through stuff that we don't have answers for. We don't need the answers. We just need to love. We need to create the space and embrace them because that may be the only thing that keeps them connected to us and to God in the end. Amen? All right. I have talked long enough. So for that, I will not preach next week. Another Adrian is going to preach next week. Um, but look, there's some communion set on the sides and at the back. And I just... 
please go and take it. Um, this is a living testimony to the faithfulness of God and to Jesus and the lengths to which he will go to express his love for us and to do what he can for us. And a reminder that even if you're not feeling that right now, these, sometimes going through the physical act and using these physical emblems, there's a bit of muscle memory in that that reminds you about what God has done for you and he will minister grace to you in that. So let's go and take it at your own pace. You're all welcome there. Come back and then we'll get the team up. Thanks.